Amen. Well, go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 3. We are beginning our study in this third chapter of Habakkuk. We've had an amazing time going through this book, and we will take a few more Lord's Days to finish this book and, and finish our study through the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 3 is where we will be this morning. And as you're turning there, I don't know about you, but there are certain things in my life that as I experience them, they just instantly jog my memory. They just instantly take me back somewhere that I've been, some experience that I've had. For instance, there's a certain patch of grass. My grass, those of you who have been to my house, know that my lawn is in dire need of maintenance on an ongoing basis. And there are different patches of grass that have grown up. There's different species of grass out there. And if I cut this specific type of grass that's on my lawn, if I cut it, there's a smell that instantly comes up of freshly cut grass, that specific kind of grass. And it takes me instantly back to Little League, to playing baseball. Uh, They must have had this specific kind of grass. Maybe it was weed infested like mine is, but it instantly takes me back to that baseball field that I used to play, Little League Baseball. There's this very specific kind of cheese that when I eat it, it, actually when I smell it, before even eating it, when I smell it, it has to be burnt to a certain degree, to a certain temperature, it has to be burnt, but there's a specific kind of cheese that takes me back to my days of living in Israel. In Jerusalem, in the old city, there was a quarter where you could go and get, I I went with one of my best friends that was there. We would go every single weekend, and we'd go have pizza at this place that was open. All the, in the Jewish quarters, it wasn't open because it was Sabbath, but this pizza place was right outside of where the Jewish quarters were, and we would eat pizza, and it was, believe it or not, it was goat cheese pizza, and I thought, that's disgusting. I'll try it once, and it was amazing. We would go back every single weekend and have goat cheese pizza And so there's a very specific smell to this burnt goat cheese. And if I smell it today, it just takes me back to being in the old city. There's a very specific kind of hand sanitizer. I I haven't smelled it, even though uh, with the coronavirus going on, uh, I've been doing a bunch of hand sanitizer. I haven't smelled this specific kind. There's a very, very specific kind. It's not the kind where you press the thing down and it kind of bloops out. Not that. This is a spray, and they used it at Children's Hospital. I don't know if they still do. Uh, Becca could tell us, but they used it at Children's Hospital. It was this blue bottle. You press this white thing down, and it would spray this hand sanitizer. It has a very distinct smell, and every time I smell that smell, it takes me right back to being at Children's Hospital. It takes me right back to seeing my son lying there with his chest open, having open-heart surgery. It takes me instantly back there. And more than just remembering the experiences through these smells, these memories also remind me of the lessons that I learned. The lesson I learned playing baseball, of working together as a team to accomplish a goal and win a championship. The lessons that I learned uh, in Jerusalem. So many different lessons going throughout the nation of Israel and seeing all the beautiful uh, places where God worked in his sovereign control and his goodness to prove himself trustworthy time and time again. And then how God was so faithful, so kind, so gentle in bringing my son out of heart surgery alive and okay, and he's just thriving today. Fighting to remember lessons from the past has always been something that we, as mankind, we struggle with. For believers, the command to remember is littered throughout the scriptures over and over again, Old and New Testament, remember, remember, remember. The command is there throughout all the pages of Holy Scripture. And the reason for that command is simple. We're prone to forget. And in our forgetting, we fail to bring into the present all of the lessons that we learned in the past. So you remember how Habakkuk began this simple little book with his lament, God, why? How long and why? Why are you letting Judah, do all the wicked things that they're doing, and how long are you going to wait before you jump in and you fix this? And God answers that first lament by saying, I see the wickedness, and I'm doing something about it, something that you wouldn't even be able to comprehend if I told you. I'm going to bring Babylon in as the disciplinary measure to judge you, to discipline you, to correct the behavior. And then Habakkuk brings his second lament. Habakkuk says, "That's thanks for the response, God, but that's not what I was looking for. I don't like that plan. I think Babylon is actually awful. They're terrible. God, you know, you're too holy to use such a wicked instrument like Babylon. 
and God says, you're right, I am holy, and therefore I'm able to use them, uh, they are not being forced in their wickedness. They are being used, just simply doing what they're doing. I'm going to use them, and then I will judge them for their wickedness. So Habakkuk, no. The just will live by faith. You can know this with confidence. You can trust me. You can live by faith. You can trust I'm good, I'm holy, and I'm working for your greatest good and your greatest joy. He brings this lament. And we spent an entire sermon talking about lament. This book is a lament. And we talked about how it is not only acceptable to lament. Many of you even said, man, I didn't know we could talk like this. It's not only acceptable, it's good and it's right to lament. We need to lament. Without lament, we won't have what lament produces in us. And here we see in chapter 3 what lament produces in Habakkuk. Remember the three main components of lament. First, there's an honest complaint brought to God. Secondly, there's a fight to trust in him in these moments. And thirdly, there is a plea for God's presence. Lament takes us through that arc. God, I don't get this and I don't like it. Help me to trust. And now, if nothing around me changes, all I want is you. And if I have you, I have everything that I need. Here in chapter 3, we see Habakkuk's lament taking full transformative effect. The things that he's gone through, the things that he's lamented about are going to change his heart even more than things changing around him would. And that's exactly what we want. That's why we're studying this book. Things around us might not get better. They might get worse, but that's okay because we can be transformed on the inside. We can change even though things around us might not be changing. Our attitude can change. Our mentality can change. What we're focusing on can change, and we're going to see that uh, over the next few weeks, beginning this morning in chapter 3. We're going to see the transforming effect that lament takes. So how do, we, how do we respond in the midst of trials? How do we walk through the, these crazy times together with a, a heart that's been transformed and a mind that stayed on Christ? There's three main aspects of how we do this well. And we'll see all of them in chapter 3. Number one, if you want to walk through a trial well and trust God through it, you're going to need to remember what God has done in the past. Number two, you're going to have to trust him in your present circumstances. And number three, you can rejoice and you must rejoice in God no matter what the future holds. So in the past, we go back, we remember what he's done. In the present, we trust him even though we don't know exactly what he's up to. And in the future, we cling to him. We don't cling to circumstances changing. We don't cling to maybe things will be different. We cling to God is unchanging, immovable, and I will cling to him and him alone. And so those three aspects of the transforming effect that lament takes in our, in our hearts, those three aspects are seen in all of chapter 3. So we're going to just dive into each one of them uh, in the subsequent Lord's Day. This morning, we're going to look at how remembering what God has done in the past cements your confidence in the present. And the next Lord's Day, Lord willing, we will look at how to wait in the midst of distress and trust in God in the present and then the week after that, we will wrap up Habakkuk by looking at this beautiful, the ending to this beautiful song where he says, though everything around me might be failing and dying and disastrous, if I have you, then I have everything that I need. I just want you. That's where lament takes us, and that's where Habakkuk is going to take us. So let's read all of chapter 3, and then we will dive into our first main point of remembering what God has done in the past. Habakkuk chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. We'll read the whole chapter to see its context. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to the Shigianoth. Lord, I have heard the report about you, and I fear. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. God comes from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praises. His radiance is like the sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hand and there is the hiding of his power. Before him goes pestilence and plague comes after him. He stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Kushan under distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. 
Did the Lord rage against the rivers or your anger against the rivers? Or was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses and on your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made bare. The rods of chastisement were sworn. Selah. You cleaved the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and quaked. The downpour of water swept by. The deep uttered forth its voice. It lifted high its hands. Sun and moon stood in their places. They went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spear. In indignation, you marched through the earth. In anger, you trampled the nations. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You struck the head of the house of the evil to lay him open from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own spears the head of his throngs. They stormed in to scatter us. Their exaltation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. You trampled on the sea with your horses on the surge of many waters. I, I heard all this and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay entered my bones and in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. And though the fig tree should not blossom, and though there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He has made my feet like hinds feet. He makes me walk on high places. For the choir director on my stringed instruments. Father, these verses are just profound. It seems like every single Sunday we come to your Word, a, a fresh, excited, ready, renewed. And still with the echo of last week ringing in our souls, thinking, how can it get better? And then we open your word and we see we're on holy ground yet again. It just keeps getting better and better. It just keeps showing more glory and more glory. It just keeps on grabbing the attention of our minds and our spirits and awakening in us affections for you. And so, Father, I pray that you do the exact same thing again this morning, that your spirit would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law so that as we see, we would be transformed. We would see Habakkuk's transformation in his own lament and we would press into lamenting ourselves, that we'd press into fighting to trust as we bring an honest complaint before you. And then we say, okay, all I want is you. Even if I don't have anything around me change, I just want more of you. God, that's our prayer. Give us more of you at whatever cost it might be to us. Give us more of you. It's a dangerous prayer, but at the same time, that is the most satisfying prayer we can pray. God, we want you. We want to be satisfied by you. So Spirit, teach us this morning, give us understanding, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to receive. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 through 15 is what we're going to look at this morning. Verses 1 through 15, we're going to see the beginning of Habakkuk's psalm. This is a song. You can see it's written in stanza form. It's a song. There's Selah scattered throughout, which is a, a musical notation. There's also uh, music that bookends it. The Shigianoth is an instrument or a type of uh, a lament. It's a form of lament. And then he says, according to the stringed in instruments at the end. So this is a prayer. It's a psalm. It's a song. He says in verse 1, and I, what I want to do this morning is I just want to walk through this whole song together up through verse 15 see what Habakkuk does, and then just ask, how do we do that in our own lives? That's what I want to do this morning. So verse 1, he begins by saying, this is a prayer. This is a prayer set to music. This is a prayer according to the Shigianoth, according to this form of expression that would be joined with stringed instruments. We don't really know exactly what that word Shigianoth means. It could be related to an Akkadian word for howling or lamenting. We find it only one other place in Scripture, and 
Psalm chapter 7, the heading for Psalm chapter 7, and Psalm 7 is a song of trust. It's, it's also a lament of trusting God in the midst of disaster. It has Selah scattered throughout. So this is a lament psalm. This is a song that Habakkuk is writing. And this psalm is so similar to, to Psalm 77. Uh, I would encourage you, we're not going to have time today to read it, but I would encourage you to write down Psalm 77 and read it on your own time because you will see identically the, the same things that Habakkuk is clinging to and the same way that he clings to it. You're going to see that in Psalm 77. But why a, a psalm? Why a song? Why does Habakkuk sing this response to God's second response? Well, there are realities in the world that are just too awesome to simply be spoken. Love is one of those realities. We, we write love songs all the time because we can't just simply say, I love you. We have to express it somehow. There are some amazing realities that must have melody and harmony attached to them to carry those realities, to buttress how beautiful they are. There's another reason why it's set to music, because if truth is set to music, it's sung, it makes it far more memorable. Music is far more memorable. We could, we could sing, I, I could sing a line of a song and just pull it out of a hat, sing it, and you could probably finish the song for me. If it's a well-known song, it's a popular song, because a tune attached to a lyric enables us to remember it. And Habakkuk is writing something that should be remembered, not just in this moment for Habakkuk, but throughout all of human history. It's a prayer, he says. It's a song, it's a psalm, but it's also a prayer. And it's a prayer for presence. It's a prayer for God's presence. Often our prayers are not centered around relationship. If we're honest, our prayers are basically, Dear Dad, can you gas up my car? Amen. This is Habakkuk saying, Forget the gas, I just want you. We often want resolution to our problems, and God is saying, I want a relationship with you in my presence. So God, in his kindness, will frustrate what's going on in our lives. He'll frustrate our routines in order for us to cling to him and to him alone. He wants a relationship. And that's why Habakkuk says, I want to pray, and I want that relationship more than anything else. Prayer, it's a prayer. Prayer is how you let God be God. Habakkuk's going to say, God, you're God, I'm not. Prayer is how you let you be you. You're God, I'm finite, I need help. Prayer is how you transfer the burdens in your life that are going on around you and in your soul. And prayer is how you deepen your relationship with God to fight for presence, to fight for more of Him, intimacy with Him. So this is a prayer, a lament, a song of trust. And he says this, verse 2, Lord, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping name of God, I've heard the report. So you spoke to me. And I heard the report. I know what the plan is. I know Babylon's on our doorstep. They're about to come in. I know they're going to be the agent of judgment and discipline. I've heard the report. And I fear. I know what you're doing. I've heard the report about you, and I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what they're going to do. I'm afraid of what Babylon's going to do. I'm afraid of what you're going to do through them. So, oh, Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. So he says, I'm afraid of what's about to happen. So God, would you be merciful while we're waiting and in the midst of the years of what's being carried out, will you be merciful to us the way that you were in the past? Revive the works. This is the whole foundation of his, of his prayer. The works that you did in the past that he's about to tell us about, those works, would you do the same thing with us now in our trials, in our struggles? In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. You're pouring out wrath. You're pouring out judgment. You're pouring out discipline. Be gentle in your discipline. Please, God. This is a prayer that I pray often. God, discipline me, but would you please be kind and gentle in your discipline? That's what Habakkuk is praying. Matthew Henry points out that the prophet did not just say, Oh, Lord, I see that this punishment is necessary, but I would remind thee that we have tried to be good and there have been worse times in our history. He doesn't say, God, would you just... Relax a little bit. We're not as bad as we used to be. He does not ask God to remember the people of Judah because of who they are or any merits that they might have, but because of who God is. Would you remember your mercy? There's no request that God would withdraw his threatened judgment and discipline. Just that God, in, in being God, is perfectly free to do whatever he wants to do, and would you be gracious as you bring discipline? Verse 3 begins this beautiful song, and it's a song of remembrance. It's a song of remembrance. There's so many different allusions uh, to the Old Testament events, many of which you know, some of them we've studied together. 
This is a beautiful psalm. Some of it uses really archaic old language, even for the name of God, as if Habakkuk is trying to say, let's go back in time. Let's remember these things as if we were there. This is what Martin Luther said. May we feel as if Jesus died just yesterday. We get so far removed from the events that we forget what those events produced in us. And so Habakkuk, in using the language that he's using, as he's remembering, as he's bringing vivid imagery back to our remembrance, He's even using poetic language in the archaic use of God's name and archaic use of other uh, types of uh, language and types of words. He's using it to say, let's go back. God, take us back. I want to be there again, and I want to remember so I don't forget. It's a beautiful, beautiful poem, and if we had more time, we'd go through uh, line by line and look at these in the Old Testament. We're not going to have time to do that, but Uh, We'll we'll draw the illusions that Habakkuk is drawing. So verse 3, he begins by saying, God comes from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Teman means south. It's the Edomite city. It's an Edomite city in the south. It's right on uh, the southern part of Jordan that tips, uh, it's, it's the tip of the Sinai Peninsula. It's right next to the Sinai Peninsula. It's the, named after the grandson of Esau. It's down in the south in Sinai. And then Mount Paran is actually Mount Sinai. It's used in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2. You can have the name Mount Sinai, the mountain that's on the Sinai Peninsula. Or you can also use the, the name Mount Paran because of the Paran wilderness. So Deuteronomy 33, verse 2 uses Paran to reference Mount Sinai. So this is Sinai. This is the Sinai Peninsula, the southern part of the Sinai Peninsula. And then this is also Mount Sinai itself. What is Habakkuk remembering? God coming to Mount Sinai. He's remembering God giving the law, the Ten Commandments and the other commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai. That's what he's remembering. And he can't get very far in his song before he has to pause. He says, say law, which is a musical notation in Hebrew that means look up, get, get your eyes off the music, look up and just take a break, rest. Why do you have to rest? All he has said is God comes from Timon and the Holy One from Mount Paran. He says, we have to stop right there because we have to remember God in his kindness is coming to speak to us. God in his kindness is giving us a law, guidelines to follow, created order to understand. God's doing this. God in his kindness is giving us his law, his revelation. And he's holy. He's holy. You remember what happened on Mount Sinai. God gives the law. God, uh, with thunder and lightning around him, God gives the law to Moses. Moses takes it back down. And he sees all of the people of Israel involved in wickedness and idolatry, the golden calf that Aaron has brought out and built. Moses smashes those tablets down, has to go back up, get new ones. Why? Because God's righteousness was being offended, his holiness. Look at where Moses was and then look at what's happening down here at the base of the mountain. Habakkuk has to stop right there and say, I I can't move on until I remember that God is holy. This hymn that he's writing traces the steps over which God leads Israel out of Egypt in to take possession of Israel. And so he begins where they began. You are my people. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now here's my covenant with you. Middle of verse 3, his splendor covers the heavens. The earth is full of his praises. That's true, generally speaking. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, so that could be what the reference is. But I think in context, he's speaking of how God's presence manifest on that mountain. His glory overtook that mountain. You couldn't even come near to it or you would die. I think that's what he's referring to. The earth is full of his praise, yes, because they're looking at the glory of God descending onto this mountain. They're shocked at glory. Verse 4, his radiance is like the sunlight. And he has rays that are flashing from his hands. Some of your Bibles might use that Old King language, uh, Old King James language to, to refer to rays being horns. Literally, his uh, horns are, are held in his hands in the middle of verse 4 instead of rays. And we understand that from what happened with uh, Moses. You remember Moses coming down from Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 through 30. Moses, his face is radiant, and the translation, uh, the old translation said his face had horns coming out of it because it was radiating glory that he had seen God in in his presence and manifest glory, and it's radiating glory. That's the reference here. God's glory is like, like sunlight. You can't look at it for very long. Even Moses had to be hidden in the cleft of the rock. There's a hiding of his power. There's a reference to it. Moreover, 
before him, verse 5, goes pestilence and plague comes after him. That's pestilence and the plague, the ten plagues that happened in Egypt to deliver God's people. He stands, God stands and surveys the earth. He looks and startles the nations. Remember the Egyptians trusted in their false gods and God frustrates their false gods by saying, whatever you believe they have power to do, I have more power to do it. I have more power. I startle the nations. The perpetual mountains are shattered. The ancient hills collapse. A mountain shatters before him. He can just speak and it's gone. His ways are everlasting. Nations come, nations go, but his ways are everlasting. Verse 7, I saw the tents of Kushan under distress and the tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. That could be a reference to uh, God bringing his chosen people into Israel, that there's a distress knowing that God is coming into Israel, that God's people and God's glory is coming into Israel. I actually think it's a reference to, if you remember our study in uh, the book of Judges, Judges chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. Remember that crazy word? It was Kushan is right here, but in Judges it was Kushan Rishathaim. Kushan Rishathaim, I believe that this is just the shortened version of that. And you remember Othniel, we don't see much about Othniel, but Othniel is the judge that's raised up to defeat the enemy, the oppressor, Kushan Rishathaim. And then you remember Midian, that was uh, Gideon, right? Gideon was raised up to defeat Midian. Remember all the camels, all the things that were stolen? It was just a great time studying through that book together and learning so many things. You can go back on our website, grab those sermons. You can, you can hear and read and study with us. I believe that's what Habakkuk is remembering. And I think it fits in the context because what's happening, Israel's problem here in Habakkuk parallels the problem that Israel had in, in the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, there was a foreign godless power that was being, being brought in by God to uh, punish, to discipline Israel. And Israel, as they cried out to God and said, God, would you save us? God sent a deliverer to save them. So I believe that Habakkuk's remembering that. God, remember how you worked in Judges. That's why he says at the beginning, revive your works. Remember how you worked in that book? In the, in the period of history of the Judges, you brought in a deliverer. Even though we didn't deserve it, we didn't earn it, you gave us grace. Would you please give us grace again, even as you bring about discipline? The text then turns from the third person in verses 3 through 7 to the second person in verses 8 through 15. It shifts to speaking of God specifically, to God specifically. Verse 8, did the Lord rage against the nations or was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses and on your chariots of salvation? What Habakkuk is saying is a question. Uh, when you split the Red Sea, when you parted the Red Sea, when you rode your chariots across the Red Sea to split it, were you angry at the Red Sea? Is that why you did it? Were you judging the Red Sea? Why did you do the wondrous works that you did? That's what Habakkuk is asking. Your bow was made bare. It means the arrow was put on it and loosed. There's no arrow. It was made bare. You shot all of your arrows. The rods of your chastisement were sworn. Selah. Again, in the midst of writing, Habakkuk says, God, why did you bring about wrath on the earth using these crazy events? Why did you do that? And as he's remembering those events of God bringing in his discipline, he has to stop. He can't continue. He says, we need to pause here because we need to know God's about to bring in discipline for us. God's about to bring in judgment against us. Then he moves on at the end of verse 9. You cleaved the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and quaked. The downpour of water swept by. The deep uttered forth its voice, lifted high its hands. There's several uh, allusions that that might be to. It might be all the way back to Noah and the ark that the downpour of water swept by. It could be to specifically the Red Sea being parted. We don't know, but we know what Habakkuk is doing. He's going back in time to say there was a moment in history where God, you judged you used natural things to happen around us in a supernatural way. And then verse 11, we know what that one is. Verse 11 is clearly a reference to Joshua 10, verses 12 through 14, where the sun stood still in Gibeon. You remember uh, Joshua prayed, and people of Israel prayed. That's verse 11. Sun and moon stood in their places. They went away at the light of your arrows, at the radiance of your gleaming spear. God, in the midst of, a, of an evil, oppressive nation, 
you spared us in miraculous ways, whether it's delivering us out of Egypt or delivering us from the Midianites or delivering us from Cushan, Rishathaim, or delivering us from the Gibeonites. You've done all of this. Verse 11, in indignation, or verse 12, in indignation, you marched through the earth. In anger, you trampled the nations. God, you've done all this. So remember the question brought up in verse 8. Why are you mad? Are you mad at the, are you mad at the rivers? Are you, are you bringing judgment because you're angry at the water, so you split the waters? What, what is it? Why are you doing all of these things? Verse 13 is the answer. It's the crux of the entire poem. You went forth for the salvation of your people. You weren't mad at water. You weren't even only mad at sin, though God is angry at sin, offended by sin. But Habakkuk goes even past that to say, you did all of this for the salvation of your people. You worked in miraculous supernatural ways to save your people for the salvation of your anointed. That's literally the word Messiah. The salvation of your anointed. That's either the salvation of the one who you have anointed. Maybe that's God's people or maybe the salvation of Moses himself that Moses was going to lead. He was the anointed one who's going to bring the people out. Maybe it's a reference to David who is God's anointed one. Could be a reference even to some of the pagan nations that God raised up a king like Cyrus or Nebuchadnezzar to bring them in. Could be a reference to Israel, your anointed people, your sovereignly chosen people. Bottom line is Habakkuk says, the one that you have chosen, you've saved them. And you did it by striking the head of the house of the evil to lay him open from thigh to neck, Selah. Habakkuk says, you've done all these wondrous works, supernatural and miraculous wonders. You've done all of them in the past to save the people that you love. Would you do it again? That's what he's saying. Verse 14, you pierced with his own spears, the head of his throngs, with his own spears. Habakkuk brings in the, the topic of reversal, of reversing this. With, your, with their own spears, you took them out of their hands and pierced them. They thought that they were in command. They thought they were in control. This is what God had said even about Babylon, that Babylon was going to be ultimately destroyed as they come in in discipline and in judgment. God's going to judge them after using them to judge Israel. The head of the throngs, they stormed in to scatter us, but their exaltation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. This is that beautiful reversal that we see. We saw it when we studied the book of Esther. Do you remember when we studied Esther? All those crazy reversals. Haman hangs on his own gallows, right? The gallows that he had built to kill Mordecai, Haman ends up hanging on them. You see this all over the Bible, Daniel's adversaries perish in the very den of lions in which they have cast him. Psalm chapter 7, verse 6 says, He who digs a pit to entrap the righteous falls into that pit that he dug himself. Abimelech and Shechem, conspiring rebels in the days of the judges, are cursed with the same self-destructive curses that they placed on other people in Judges chapter 9. So Habakkuk says, God, do this. Do this work. You've done it before in the past. Would you please do it again? The essence of what Habakkuk is saying in all of these verses, when he says, you trampled on the sea with your horses, the surge of many waters, you rode in on your horses, beautiful imagery, you rode in to save your people. Would you ride in to save us? This is what Habakkuk is saying. Israel will experience salvation in and through the discipline that's coming, but they will never be abandoned. God's not abandoning them. Habakkuk is saying, God, I remember you. I remember how you've worked in the past. So I'm going to trust in the present. He's going all through the Old Testament, getting all these stories, all these narratives to say, I remember how you've saved us in the past. Would you help us and save us in the present? Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. If God did not actually do the things that are recorded in the Old Testament for Israel, then the whole Bible may just be a piece of psychology meant to keep me happy. The Bible, however, plainly shows that my comfort and consolation lies in true facts. The fact that God has done certain things and that they have literally happened. The God in whom I believe is the God who could and did divide the Red Sea and the River Jordan. In reminding himself uh, and us of these things, Habakkuk is not just comforting himself by playing with ideas. He's speaking of the things that God has actually done. 
The Christian faith is solidly based upon facts, not ideas. And if the facts recorded in the Bible are not true, then I have no hope and no comfort because we are not saved by ideas. We're saved by facts and by events. And so the prophet goes back through those events to say, you've saved us in the past, you're going to save us. You've never abandoned us in the past, you will not abandon us now. It's a beautiful poem. What are we going to do with this? What are we to make of this? Once understanding what Habakkuk is saying, what do we do now? I want to end our time by really asking four questions and just beginning to process these four questions. We're not going to go to, to very deep on each of these questions. We're going to go very slowly through them, uh, but just go, going through a couple of them. Um, I believe that when we see what Habakkuk has done, we need to ask four questions. Number one, what is Habakkuk remembering? Number two, what does that accomplish? Number three, what should we remember? And number four, how do we remember this? So number one, we'll go through these slowly together. Number one, what does Habakkuk remember? What does he remember? Well, I could sum it up here. He's remembering God at Sinai in verse three, uh, the first part of verse three. He's remembered God as glorious creator who comes down to Sinai in his glory in verses three and four. He's remembering God in the plagues of Egypt, verse 5. He's remembering God's glory and his grandeur, his uh, preeminence over all creation in verse 6. He's remembering God's deliverance in the days of Othniel and Gideon in verse 7. On and on and on and on and on it goes. He's remembering all of these events. But let's dive deeper into what those events represent. What is Habakkuk remembering in and through those events? Let me give you five things. What is Habakkuk remembering? Number one, he's remembering God is holy. He's remembering God is holy. Habakkuk is calling to mind and remembering God is holy. Holy means sinless, yes, but it means so much more than having no sin, right? Because angels are called holy. They have no sin. They, uh, they're called holy in the sinless sense, but God is way beyond angels. He's not an angel, and he's not a human. He is completely set apart from his creation. God the Father is completely removed and set apart from us as holy. Holy means separated. He's completely removed from us. There's no one like him. He's not what false religions believe or what cults believe him to be, that he's just some exalted man. He is completely removed from us. He's holy. Number two, Habakkuk is remembering God is creator. God's not only holy, removed from us, but he's creator. He made us. He created us. He's the one who made all of creation, the, the hills, the water, and he made all of us who are in his creation, who are his creation, a part of it. He's made everything that we see around us. And because he is creator, he owns it all. He gets to do what he wants to do with it because he owns it. He made it. Just like if you painted a picture, it's your painting. You get to keep it. You get to sign your name on it. You get to give it to who you want to give it to. It's yours. God owns us. He's holy. He's creator. Number three, Habakkuk is remembering that God is judge. God is judge. For those who will not follow what he has said, he must punish them. He must judge them, right? This is, this is what's happening in America today. We are a people who demand justice. Why? Because we see something that's wrong, and we say that's wrong, and that can't continue. But then for some reason, when we talk about God, we think that God should just forgive everybody unconditionally and not punish anyone. No, that's not possible. God is good. He created us. He set rules for us for our greatest satisfaction and joy and happiness. God is judge. He must punish sin. And Habakkuk's remembering that sin is punished. God is a judge. God created the world. He said, let there be stars. And the stars were placed in the sky. And he told them how brightly to shine. And they shone that brightly. He made light. He made the moon. He made the sun. He made trees. He made birds. He made the ocean. And he said, this is how far your, your, gonna, your waves are going to crash. He made all that we see. And every single thing that he made praised his name and said, yes, we will, gladly. And then he makes us. And we say, we're not going to do what you tell us. God has to judge sin. But God doesn't stop there. 
Habakkuk says, God, you are holy, you are creator, and you are judge of all of us who have broken your laws. But you're also, number four, deliverer. God, you are our deliverer. You are our deliverer. You delivered those who place their faith in you, those who, who take their refuge in you. You delivered us. You've done it in the past. You're going to do it again. So you are judge, and that's why we fear, but you're deliverer, and that's why we plead. God is holy, creator, judge, deliverer. And fifthly, and just to wrap all that Habakkuk has said in this entire book up, God is righteous, just, and good. Number five, God is righteous, just, and good. He says it even in this uh, psalm, that God, you're, you're creator, you can do what you want. But he said it earlier, God is righteous, he's just, you're holy, you're right in what you do, and you're good, you're good. That's what Habakkuk is remembering. In all the historical events that he's calling back to mind, he's remembering God's holy, he's creator, he's judge, he's deliverer, and he's good and righteous in all that he does. That's what he remembers. Question number two. So what? What does that accomplish? Why remember these things? What does this accomplish? Well, I want to give you five more, five more things. I think that this accomplishes a lot in our lives, and I think that this will transition us into what are we going to do about this. Number one, remembering these realities about who God is, that God's holy creator, judge, deliver, and he's good and right in all he does. Number one, it helps us to feel very small. Remembering these things helps us to feel very small. God is God. We're not. He created us. We answer to him. We have no autonomy on our own. We have no right or authority to tell him what to do. He has all right and authority to do whatever he pleases. This makes us feel very small, and that's a good thing. But the beauty of what's happening in this poem and in this book is that Habakkuk is not just saying, well, God, you're creator, you're judge. You get to do whatever you want, so go ahead and do it. If God were creator and our judge, but he was not good, if he could just do whatever he wanted because he has all right and authority to do it because he created us, we're his creation, he can do whatever he wants. That would be a terrifying thing if we didn't know his character, that he's good. He doesn't just willy-nilly decide to do something awful. He's, he's good in everything that he does. He's just in everything that he does. It would not leave us in a comfortable position if we did not know that God is good in being holy creator and judge. So as we feel small, we recall his judgments, knowing that they tell us that God is a God who knows right from wrong because he is only good and he delivers all who take refuge in him. It, it's a beautiful thing to feel small in his presence. Number two, what else does this help us do? What is, why would we remember? What does this accomplish in remembering? Number two, it helps us to see with an eternal perspective. Remembering what God has done in the past helps us to see with an eternal perspective. It reminds us that God's working in all of human history, and then we're just a little blip on the radar, right? It just reminds us that in the timeline of all of human history, we are so small compared to everything that's going on. Reviewing God's deeds in the past, we see way more clearly what he's done in the past and how he's worked and how he's promised to work in the future. We say it a lot, hindsight is 2020. So what we do when we remember is we take that 2020 vision to the past. We can see clearly in the rearview mirror what's gone on, and we can see how God is working in human history. Imagine just being able to look 50 years down the road at what God was doing during the season of the coronavirus. Right now we're saying, God, what in the world are you up to? But give it a few decades, and we'll be able to see. We're already starting to see some of the things that God is doing. So remembering God's works helps us to see with an eternal perspective. Number three, what does remembering accomplish? Number three, it helps us to not feel alone. It helps us to remember that we're not alone. We don't feel alone because we're not alone. God's with us. He's working for us. He's worked in the past. He's working in our midst. That leads to number four, it helps us to feel cared for. He's seen everything that's gone on in the past and stepped in to help. So obviously he's seeing us right now and he's going to step in to help. He is doing it in ways that we probably can't even comprehend, but he loves us. Finally, number five, it helps us to take courage. That's why Habakkuk's writing this. I remember what you've done in the past, and it will help me to have courage in the moment, in the present. Remembering what God has done in the past accomplishes courage, inducing power and strength for the days ahead. Charles Spurgeon says, says it this way. I've sometimes said that when, I, uh, when I've become the prey of doubting thoughts, I say to myself, well, now I dare not doubt whether there be a God, 
because I can look back in my diary and see on such and such a day in the depths of trouble, I bent my knees to God. And when I had risen from my knees, the answer was given to me. God worked in the past. If I'm struggling to doubt him in the present, I can go back to see, wait, he's done something in the past. I can trust him. Remember 1 Samuel 17 with David and Goliath. Why did David have so much confidence and courage as he went to fight Goliath? You remember what he said? I have fought bears. I've fought the lions. I can destroy all of those beasts. This guy's just a beast like them. God's protected me in those moments. God will protect me against Goliath. We need to remember that's why we have a word for that in Hebrew. In the Old Testament, remember, they would build those monument stones. We call them Ebenezers. It's a Hebrew word for uh, just remembering it. It literally means the Hebrew word is, up until now, God has helped us. He's been our help to this point. So therefore, he's not going to let us down in the future. This is why we have all the Ebenezers in Scripture. When 1 Samuel chapter 7, when the Ark of the Covenant comes back from the Philistines, they build an Ebenezer. Say, we lost the presence of God, we felt abandoned, but God said he's not going to abandon us. And he brought himself, his presence back to us in the Ark of the Covenant in miraculous ways. And they build an Ebenezer. We need to remember for all of those reasons. It helps us to feel small. It helps us to see with an eternal perspective. It helps us to not feel alone. It helps us to feel cared for. It helps us to take courage. One commentator says it this way, to be sure the prevalent call for God's people to remember the Lord or his law or his grace or his character pervades all of scripture. Indeed, in the minor prophets, the call to remember the Torah is a significant and abiding command. Further, the practice of memory is a constituent feature of the two ordinances in the church, baptism and communion. In both, the memory of God's saving work in the past and the Passover uh, delivering the people from Egypt or in uh, the climax of the reality of God's saving work in Jesus Christ. This is all to remember in celebration in God's miraculous deeds. And then he says this, forgetfulness of God and his works equates to a loss of love for our creator. If we forget him, then we forget who he is, how he's worked, and we begin to lose love for him. And he ends the quote by saying, memory is vital for Christian life. So then what should we remember? What should we remember? This is question number three. We have, what did Habakkuk remember? What does that accomplish? And number three, what should we remember? We should remember, let me give you five more things. And again, there's so many more in the Bible. We should remember our own lostness. We should remember who we were before God saved us. That we were, in the words of Ephesians chapter 2, by nature children of wrath, bent on running as far away from God as possible. We should remember, remember, number two, that God saved us. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to remember that on a daily basis, that God saved you. Just like Sergio, our, our brother, read this morning in Luke chapter 15, you need to remember that as you ran your hellbound race, God in his grace was standing there watching you, running to you, not letting you go. Number three, remember that God started it, so he's going to finish it. Remember that God's going to finish what he started. He will finish what he started. Remember number four, God has promised never to abandon you. God has promised never to abandon you. So remember your lostness. Remember that God saved you. Remember that God started this, so he's going to finish it. Remember number four, God has promised never to abandon you. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. That's all over the pages of scripture. And that leads us to number five. Remember the trustworthiness of God in never wasting our pain. Remember the trustworthiness of God in not wasting a moment of our pain. He doesn't waste any pain or suffering. There are so many other things that you should remember as a believer. And so I encourage you in uh, fellowship groups uh, over email and text and phone calls or Zoom calls, talk to the people around you. Talk to other believers and ask them, what is it that you remember about God working in your life that brings you to a place where you trust him in the present? So what does Habakkuk remember? What does that accomplish? What should we remember? And lastly, we'll end with this. How do we remember? How do we remember? Again, the options are pretty much endless. Let me give you five. 
You can read the scriptures. You should read the scriptures daily. Habakkuk's remembering the Exodus. He studied it, and that study is informing his day today. Uh, this is in the Old Testament. The kings of Israel were required by God to write down a copy of the law for themselves so that they could remember it and read it. We need to open God's word. We need to have time to do it. We need to make time to do it and have a set time throughout uh, the week. We need to be able to slow down and soak in the word. We need to retain what we're reading. We need to spend every day in the Bible. And then we'll be able to re remember how God has worked in the past. Secondly, you could journal. There's a discipline of journaling, writing down what God has done in the past so that you don't forget it. Thirdly, we sing. This is why we sing. We sing to remember. We sing to remember the glory of God in what he has done in the past. Number four, fellowship. This is the beauty of fellowship. We should be getting together with people and asking, hey, what has God done for you that we can rejoice and celebrate in, that we can take from the past to today and say, God, I know you're going to do it again. We should do that today. And lastly, baptism and communion, as we talked about. Baptism and communion are God-given ordinances that enable us to remember salvation, to remember regeneration, to remember the covenant that God has made with us in his death and his resurrection. So remembering what God has done in the past enables us to trust him in the present and beyond. And as Habakkuk reviews God's faithfulness in Israel's history, Habakkuk can now face the fears of going forward with faith and trust in the God of all of human history. And we can do the exact same thing. Remember what Habakkuk said, in your wrath, will you remember mercy? Will you be merciful? At the climax of all of human history, the Messiah, God's anointed one, did come. God truly did, in wrath, remember mercy. At the cross of Jesus, God's wrath was poured out on his son so that we who would trust in his son might be washed clean in an act of astounding mercy. In God's judgment against sin and his wrath against sin, he has remembered and given and bestowed upon us such rich mercy. So let's, let's sing together and remember even as we sing our lostness, remember even as we sing God's holiness, he's creator, he's judge, he's deliverer, and he is our redeemer. Father, we thank you so much for your amazing grace. We need to fight every single day to remember. We need to remember to remember. We forget. We are such a forgetful people. So God, I pray now as we sing and we, uh, we just bring all these thoughts before you and, and we, we ask as we sing that you would enable us to remember. Even the words that we sing, that they would call back to mind the way you've worked in human history and the scriptures, the way you've worked in our lives the way you've sovereignly ordained specific things in our lives. Just as we studied in Ruth, those so, it just so happened moments. It just so happened that something, something happened in our lives and it didn't, didn't seem like a big deal at the time, but then looking back, we see it accomplished unbelievable realities because you were working and you always are. God, you are the ancient of days. None before you, none beside you. All of our moments are in your hands. May we worship you now as we sing. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.